Okay, Ian, I'm going to warn you up front. This episode might give you a bit of deja vu. Oh, no. Is there a glitch in the Matrix? There is no spoon. (laughs) Okay, anyway, um, why are we talking about deja vu? Well, because this is someone who we haven't actually had on the show yet, but we have talked about her work before. I'm Angel Shu. I'm an assistant professor of public policy and the environment at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I also directed and found a research group called the Data Driven Lab. Hmm. The name sounds familiar, but I don't recognize the voice. That's because we didn't actually get to hear from Angel. Remember our mini season with Tiffany Christian? Oh, yeah, when we had a guest expert statistician to talk about some cool environmental work. Now that you mention it, I remember discussing one of Angel's papers when we were talking about the urban heat island effect. Right you are. And while listeners can check our back catalog for that episode, today we're bringing you some fresh work from Angel, including understanding how heat island effects differ across neighborhoods, how she created a system to compare equity across those neighborhoods, and, hearkening back to one of the April episodes, how we can use community science to further this work. A major component of my work seeks to understand the intersection between urbanization and climate change, both how cities are impacted by it and how they contribute to it, but also how they may hold potential solutions to solving the climate crisis. That's a lot to cover. But before we do... Introductions? Mm-hmm. All right, I'm Sadie Witkowski. And I'm Ian Martin. And you're listening to Carry the Two, a podcast from the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, a.k.a. MC. This is the podcast where Sadie and I talk about the real-world applications of mathematical and statistical research. We might seem like an odd couple to tackle these topics. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and Ian is a high school choir teacher. But turns out, if you talk to the right people, they can help us make sense of all this math and stats. And for this month, we'll be focusing on mathematics and statistics in the earth sciences. That's right. We're collaborating with the American Geophysical Union's podcast, Third Pod from the Sun, to bring you a weekly series with some excellent guests. So if you enjoyed this conversation, you should also check out the AGU's podcast this Friday. And don't worry, we'll make sure to link to their podcast in the show notes. I wrote this article, this op-ed in the Huffington Post way back in the day, and the, and the headline was something like, whales don't tweet and trees don't shop on Amazon. And so one of the reasons why it's been difficult to marry environmental data into the policy world is exactly because of that. It's hard to get signals on what's going on in the natural world. And because they're not shopping and surfing the internet like we humans do, and it's very easy to get that consumer data, it's challenging for the natural world and for the environment. And so I really wanted to dedicate my career to thinking about how we can innovate new types of data to really measure and evaluate what's going on, what's the extent of environment and climate challenges that are affecting us, and then also how effective are our policy responses at tackling them. Turns out, Angel got interested in her field of research in a bit of a different way than most. Oh, how so? Well, before she decided to do a PhD, she worked in an environment and climate change think tank. She focused on how to measure for greenhouse gases, especially in countries that are still rapidly developing and may not be carefully tracking such numbers. So basically, she was still looking at data, but for policy purposes rather than research. And it was while working there that she realized that we need both. We need scientific research, which can then inform the best possible policies to confront climate change. And so I went into an interdisciplinary program and decided that I wanted to combine tools in data science, geographic remote sensing, and being able to use satellite data and bear, bear that in the policy context. So really bringing data and quantitative approaches into the policy context. 
So from the outset, she's had an eye on the practical applications of her research. Absolutely. Okay. But at the beginning of our episode, you said we'd be reprising our discussion specifically on heat island effects, right? Right. So like we mentioned back in our episode with Tiffany... The urban heat island effect, or UHI for short, is the phenomenon by which cities are warmer than their rural surroundings. And so when we measure it, when we come up with a metric for the UHI, it's the temperature difference between urban and rural areas. So it's not just telling us the temperature of the cities, but specifically how much warmer they are compared to the baseline of the surrounding rural areas. Yeah, and all that heat is generated by more than just black asphalt soaking up the sun's rays. Uh, So cities are density also of people, not just infrastructure. And so when you have transportation, people driving cars, motorcycles, other types of motorized vehicles, you've got factories and industry that are also generating and producing heat. Um, That all contributes to the urban heat island effect. And so um, all of these uh, activities, and did I mention air conditioning, but also air conditioning, so the density of people. So I was most recently living in Singapore, and so that's located at the equator where you have a huge density of built environment, and you also have a density of people and motorized vehicles, but you also have a lot of air conditioning. So just by the way the air conditioners work, they are sucking in air and then they're cooling the air inside. But then as a result, they are uh, through the process of mechanical work, they're also generating heat that then can warm an urban environment. So it's both the infrastructure and also human density and population. Well, we are warm blooded, so I guess it makes sense. And I would like to take this time to apologize for raising Chicago's UHI because of my own personal hotness. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyways, this urban heat island effect is really important for global health because according to the UN, more than half of the world's population is in cities and urban areas. And that percentage is continuing to rise. Meaning even more people are being affected by this. Urban heat island effect, UHI, can have direct and indirect impacts on human health and well-being. So the direct impacts could be heat-related illnesses such as heat exhaustion, heat stroke, dehydration, and people who may be vulnerable to these types of health-related impacts would be particularly concerned. So we're talking about the elderly, people who are 65 or over. Actually, heat-related mortality is the highest amongst this particular age group. So something around 39% of deaths amongst elderly people are somehow related to heat. So that's according to the latest CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Statistics. And so elderly people need to be uh, particularly concerned about the urban heat island effect because they're the demographic that's the most affected. And heat can also affect other types of comorbidities or other diseases that could be exacerbated by heat. Throwback to Christy's episode on climate change and global health. (laughs) Yep, that's definitely something we talked about like two weeks ago. So in the South, where I'm located here in North Carolina, everybody has an air conditioner. Everyone's just driving around in their air conditioned cars from point A to point B. But in many parts of the United States and also many parts of the world, also in Europe, and that's one of the reasons why that 2003 heat wave was so deadly, they don't have access to air conditioning or cooling centers that could help prevent some of these deaths. So we know what UHI stands for and why it matters for our health. But have we talked about how we measure it? Not yet. Good catch. The most traditional way is just to use data from monitoring or weather stations. And most cities have these and they may have several of them or they may have them located in areas where they actually are away from cities. And so in Chapel Hill, where I am in North Carolina, most of the weather data that we get on our phones comes from a weather station that is located at the airport. 
And so that's, that's one way. But as I mentioned earlier, that's not necessarily where people are being affected by the urban heat island effect. And if people are living in a dense urban area, if they're downtown, if they're in a neighborhood, they could be several hundred um, um, meters or yards or even miles away from the closest weather station. Oh, I didn't even think about where we're taking these measurements from. And so if they check their phones, it doesn't necessarily mean that the readings that they're getting from weather.com or from their app are necessarily coming from where they're living. And because the built environment, the density of buildings and people and the types of transportation and electricity that they're surrounded and also the access to air conditioning, then the urban heat island effect can affect them in different ways. And so it's been difficult to try to really understand what the impact is of the urban heat island effect of higher temperatures to individuals and individual health because of the sparsity of these monitoring stations located uh, maybe next to or adjacent to an urban area. And so one of the approaches that we've been employing to really understand and be able to compare the urban heat island effect across the United States and also globally, and also its impact to different populations has been to use satellite remote sensing. Because there's so many satellites in our sky, they can collect consistent temperature readings between urban and rural areas with about a one kilometer resolution. And with these higher resolution measurements, what are some of the discoveries Angel's team has made? Using the satellite remote sensing data, then we can start to answer some of those questions of, is it unequal for people living in different parts of a city? I mean, I think that's one question that we certainly as a scientist want to interrogate. I mean, I think anecdotally, we hear some of these stories about racist historic um, policies like redlining, where you had minority communities that were relegated into some parts of cities that were considered hazardous or declining, and that prevented them from accessing loans that would have allowed them to move into better areas of cities that are more shaded, have access to better urban amenities that perhaps are less dense, that have higher levels of tree cover that would all make them cooler. Oh, yeah, this is definitely ringing some memory bells. (laughs) Yeah, Angel's findings definitely stuck with me. And what we found is that in 97% of these cities, people of color were being exposed to higher levels of urban heat and temperatures than their white counterparts. And then if you looked at income, we also found similar patterns. So people who were living below the poverty line and people who were living above the poverty line were also facing different exposure to urban heat and also temperatures. And so people, and the patterns were actually really similar. So in 95 and 94% of cities across America, we found that people living below poverty were exposed to higher levels of urban heat than wealthier counterparts. This seems like just another example of the cost of poverty in the U.S., Yeah, but it turns out that this isn't a phenomenon unique to the United States and our history of redlining. So to me, that seems to suggest that this issue is more systemic and even more pernicious than just saying, oh, well, there was this policy in the 1930s and 1940s post-war that prevented people of color from getting favorable loans to allow them to be able to move and and be more mobile within cities. This seems to suggest that there have been been policies that have been happening uh, and practices that have been happening since that are still going on today that are leading to these disproportionate exposures to urban heat. And we're also finding these patterns to be similar across um, cities globally as well. What are some examples of this outside the US? But in Europe, in cities like Copenhagen, which is often touted as being this paragon of environmental sustainability in the bicycle kingdom, they are also burdening poor populations, poor neighborhoods within the city with higher levels of urban heat. And um, so this is this is similar. And, and in, in cities where we're not seeing this type of exposure for poor 
populations. It's in cities that are in developing countries where uh, a lot of the populations within cities are actually wealthier than their rural counterparts. What's really interesting to me is that it turns out newer cities seem to have the exact opposite effect because it's the newly wealthy wanting to live in the center of commerce and that are leaving these more rural spaces behind. So in China, Beijing has more than 100 billionaires. And if you have ever been to Beijing, actually the central business district has a population density 25 times higher than New York City, which is always blows my mind. If you think about like the density of people, they have more than 20 million people living in that city and it's just sprawling and it's huge. And in, in, in these cases, in the, in the global south and developing countries, cities are, are, are um, they, they pull in their drivers of wealth and, and, and having wealthy people living. And so when you have that type of uh, income uh, concentration and you have people living in these urban areas that are being built at an incredible rate, then wealthier people are being exposed to higher levels of urban heat than people who are living uh, primarily in agrarian and, and rural areas within that country. Whoa, that's definitely not something we talked about with Tiffany. No, but it makes intuitive sense, right? Yeah, and now that we have these studies to demonstrate inequalities in heat burden, what are we doing about it? Angel will tell us about her method of using a single value to clearly and easily communicate these disproportionate burdens of heat stress once we're back from this short message. If you're getting a lot out of the important research shared on our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show that you should check out. It's called Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast provides a fresh perspective on the biggest political stories, not through opinions and anecdotes, but rigorous scholarship, massive data sets, and a deep knowledge of theory. If you want to understand the political science behind political headlines, then listen to Not Another Politics Podcast part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network. So before, you were saying that Angel was able to distill her work down to one number? Right. Because as we mentioned, Angel is driven by making policy changes that protect everyone. We really landed on the idea of of distributive or dis distributional justice. So does everybody have the same access to the same environmental amenities? And does everybody have protection from the same environmental harms? Well, no need to keep us in suspense. From a data perspective, and I'm a data scientist, so I have to think about what, what can I actually measure in a comparable and widespread way so that we can actually evaluate differences between cities and within cities. And for Angel, this all comes down to the Gini coefficient, which she co-ops from its traditional use in evaluating income inequality to then look at heat stress inequality. All right, finally getting some numbers and equations for our math podcast. Um, how do you calculate the Gini coefficient? So first, we should explain the Lorenz curve. It's basically a graphical representation of the distribution of income or wealth within a population. So it shows how much the total income or wealth is held by different portions of the population ranked by the poorest all the way to the richest. But basically, if you think about uh, if you have on one axis the different proportions of the population and then you have on the y axis the distribution of income, if it was equally distributed, you would have a 45 degree line intersecting or bisecting these two axes. But then for most countries, income is not evenly distributed. And so it ends up looking like a curve below this line of 45 degree perfect equality. 
And then the Gini coefficient then is just dividing the area between this Lorentz curve and this diagonal line of perfect equality. And um, so that's mathematically how you then calculate it. Okay, so that's how you would traditionally calculate the Gini coefficient for income inequality. How do we do the same thing for urban heat island effect? So it's using the exact same idea. So if you had air pollution, so if we think about particulate matter, if that's distributed amongst every segment of the population, each neighborhood equally, we'd expect then for it to plot this 45 degree of perfect equality. But then if it's burdening poor populations, then we might see this curve go above that line of perfect equality. And if it goes below, then it's burdening then more of the wealthier populations below that curve. I know that trying to describe equations and graphs in an auditory medium can be kind of difficult. So we'll link to Angel's work so you can see for yourself. Okay, that totally makes sense for environmental factors like air quality. And I can see how you do the same thing for heat or water pollution or other environmental measures. Yeah, it's a really nice tool because it neatly summarizes that main discrepancy, you know, how disproportionate some environmental impact is on a population. And so we really wanted to adapt this Gini coefficient and the idea of these Lorentz curves to come up with our environmental concentration indices to be able to summarize for policymakers. And so we can have a single number that can then communicate to the public and policymakers. So the closer it is to zero, that means more equal, more equally distributed income is or more equally distributed the environmental harm or the environmental amenity is amongst the population. A clear message from a simple metric. Seems like that's the best pitch I've heard for policymakers in all sorts of situations, including here. Yeah, data scientists might like to build complex models and do interesting calculations, but when it comes to informing policy, sometimes the best move is to just keep it simple. I mean, there's a lot of very complicated math and a lot of complicated economics that you can do, but then I'm really interested at the end of the day of, well, how can we actually motivate policy change. And if you have a metric that's so complicated, the math is so complicated, and they have to learn all these economics to decipher it, that at the end of the day, it's probably not that powerful in actually achieving your goal, which is policy change in my, in my world. So I know we've covered a lot more of Angel's work than was in our episode last fall, but let's keep the trend up. What are the next areas where she's interested in researching? Well, it's a mix of local and national work. Let's start with the local. In this case, with a nice helping of community science. Oh, call back to Catherine and Axel's episode this April. <laughs> yeah. In this case, Angel got help from her local fellow community members to map out heat in the area. In the summer of 2021, right when I actually moved to the Raleigh-Durham Triangle area here in North Carolina, I got engaged with the Museum of Life and Science here, which is based in Durham. They had applied for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric uh, Administration, to send them these sensors that they could mount on top of vehicles and bicycles and engage citizens to do high resolution heat mapping within the city of Raleigh and Durham County. And so I got involved in that campaign and it was just incredible to see they had something like 100 volunteers come and volunteer their time and drive around <laughs> Raleigh and Durham at three times a day in the morning, in the afternoon, and then also in the evening to collect this data. Angel, together with the Museum of Life and Science, brought together a team of volunteers to take these remote sensors all around the Research Triangle area. And so on an incredibly hot day, August 28th of 2021, we uh, had 40 volunteers, primarily students, and they took out handheld 
pocket lab sensors. These, these are consumer grade sensors that can measure air temperature and humidity every second. And we routed two to three mile routes in these different neighborhoods for them to collect this data. Man, if I lived in the Durham area, I would totally hop on my bike and ride around to collect data for this. Even on a record hot day? Well, maybe they want data on a record-breaking perfect weather day, like um, April 25th? <laughs> nice try, Miss Congeniality. But they were interested in heat stress, so people were out collecting this information on one of the hottest days. Based on the Raleigh data, uh, it, the city of Raleigh and the, and the sustainability office, they were able to, to see, okay, where are areas that are hot spots of heat and that are uh, relatively warmer and hotter compared to other parts of the city. And they found that there were some roadways that were particularly hot and would it uh, affected communities living around them. So very shortly after the city of Raleigh voted to allocate $77,000 to covering those roadways with titanium oxide, which is a very reflective material that could help to reduce the albedo or actually could increase the albedo, the surface reflectance and reduce the amount of heat in those areas. And so to me, that's just such a fantastic example of how data, high resolution data on heat and urban heat island immediately led to decision makers making a policy and, and deciding to do something about it and then mobilizing the city to then allocate resources. So that what that's, I think, a really great local example. Titanium dioxide? That's the stuff in my sunscreen. I didn't realize roads had skincare routines. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, so Angel got to see direct policy change from this project. Yeah, it's thanks to the hard work of the community members that they were able to do this. And as for future projects, well, Angel has some interesting papers that should be coming out soon. We want to really be able to untangle some of the drivers of these disparities that we're seeing in heat exposure. So we know that there are racial differences and differences by income. But then I think this question of disentangling, okay, well, what is the consequence of these racist policies in the 1930s and 40s of redlining? And then also what's due to present day existing and ongoing disparities and in investments in different communities or deinvestments in certain communities. And so we're about to finish a study where we're looking at um, whether or not cities are actually closing the gap and closing these disparities. Has it actually gotten worse for some communities over time? And that's not something that has been answered yet. And so we're really excited about that, looking at the past and, and, what, and, and whether or not cities have actually been able to rectify. Sounds like this isn't the last we'll be hearing from Angel. Definitely not. Don't forget to check out our show notes in the podcast description for a link to Third Pod from the Sun Story with Angel Sue. We'll also link to Angel's work on their research from the Confronting Global Climate Change program here at MC. And if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. By rating and reviewing the show, you really help us spread the word about Carry the Two so that other listeners can discover us. And for more on the math research being shared at MC, be sure to check us out online at our homepage, mc.institute. We're also on Twitter at mc underscore institute, as well as Instagram at mc.institute. And that's mc spelled I-M-S-I. And do you have a burning math question? Maybe you have an idea for a story on how mathematics and statistics connect with the world around us. Send us an email with your idea. You can send your feedback, ideas, and more to sadiewit at mc.institute. That's S-A-D-I-E-W-I-T at mc.institute. We'd also like to thank our audio engineer, Tyler Dammy, for his production on the show. 
And thanks to Jay Steiner, producer from AGU's Third Pod from the Sun, for their work collecting this tape. And music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Lastly, Carry the Two is made possible by the Institute for Mathematical and Statistical Innovation, located on the gorgeous campus of the University of Chicago. We're supported by the National Science Foundation and the University of Chicago. There is no spoon. I love the Matrix. Red pill or blue pill? She's like, I don't see color. (laughs) Also, I'm obsessed with memory bells, by the way. Because otherwise I feel like no one's going to understand what I'm saying. It's called a deep cut. (laughs) I know, they're going to be like... Wear your sunscreen. Do it. Ready? (laughs) I'm so ready. Knock, knock. Who's there? Two. To who? It's actually whom? Oh, that is such a high school joke. I can't even. (laughs) 